Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountains, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecu persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sam. Uh, if we, great start. Uh, if we have not had the opportunity uh, to meet yet, my name is Cam. Uh, I am a uh, pastor here, partnered with ResPres. I work for a ministry called RUF on the campus at UW. Uh, it is uh, spring break for UW students, and the weather did not get the memo. Um, so thanks for uh, joining me this morning uh, on this snowy day. Um, what I want to do for us real quick before we dive in is give us a real quick recap and intro of kind of where we've been and where we're going, and then uh, I'll pray for us and, and we'll dive into what we have today. So if, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we are continuing our series that we just entered on the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes, if you're new to the Bible, is the beginning of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, one of the most famous uh, passages in the Bible. And in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching about his kingdom. And in the Beatitudes, which are the beginning of his sermon, he's showing us the paradox of who his kingdom is for. That it's not for who we think it is. Because his kingdom is very different, if we're honest, than the one that we often try to build for ourselves. And what we're going to be doing in this series is walking through each Beatitude individually. But the nine Beatitudes can actually be separated into three sections. The sections being first the flourishing of the humble, which is the section we're in today, the flourishing of those who pursue justice, and finally the flourishing of those who create peace. And today we're going to be continuing Jesus' Beatitudes about the paradox of humility. That actually last week as we saw, uh, there's flourishing in the poor in spirit. That this, this, uh, this morning we're going to see that there's actually flourishing in mourning. And finally that there's flourishing in the meek. And if you're new to the Beatitudes, what I want us to, to see as we continue to move through this series is that the key to understanding them is in two things. First, this word that you see translated in your text is blessed, or the Greek word makarios. And second, this word you see translated in your text is for. These are the keys to understanding what Jesus is saying. Because this word you see translated as blessed is not about divine favor. The point is not that Jesus is describing a transaction, do X to get X. The Beatitudes are not about describing the, quote, good Christians or simply about moral behaviors, but it's actually about a redefinition of who the people of God are and what their hope for flourishing is in Christ. And so the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular are an invitation, an invitation to a flourishing life in relationship with Jesus 
as he has both brought us his kingdom, and yet if we're honest, we're also homesick for heaven. And second, this word you see as for or because, this word is important because it's always signaling the result of this way of being that Jesus calls us to. And so the key to the Beatitudes is paying attention to the relationship between this beginning clause and this ending clause. And Jesus's point is to reorient our vision in this life so that we might see our hope in this life to come and the reward we will experience when we are with God. As one author, Scott McKnight, writes, Jesus here is redefining flourishing while awaiting the eschaton, which is a fancy word for heaven. And what is radical and unique about Jesus' flourishing is the unexpected twist that human flourishing is now found amid suffering in the time of waiting for God to bring his just reign from heaven to earth. See, the great paradox of Jesus is that he is a greater king than we could imagine, and he is a humbler king than we could imagine. That he is the son of God and the savior of the world, and he was also born in a manger, he rode on a donkey in his triumphal entry, and he, a man who was without sin, died on a cross next to a thief. And similarly, Jesus is calling his people to a life of humility because his kingdom is actually better. It's what we're homesick for. And so here's the paradox that Jesus tells us that we are going to look at today. He says this, flourishing are those who mourn, because they shall be comforted. Flourishing are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Let's play real quick and I'll dive in. Jesus, we come before you today uh, from different places. Uh, some of us are mourning. We are lamenting our, our lives in this moment and we pray that you would meet us and grant us comfort. Others of us are afraid to mourn. We're afraid of lament. And God, would you teach us to lament today? We pray that your spirit would speak and would, would you equip our ears to listen? With all these things in your name, amen. See, as much as this idea makes sense, we kind of instinctually know what mourning is. This is also very countercultural, because if we're honest, we don't like to mourn. We are uncomfortable with mourning. Our culture is uncomfortable with grief and sadness. When I think about this, I think of, uh, I have the, the old, uh, my, um, my parents loved music from the 70s, and that's what we would listen to in the car. And I, I think of that, uh, that song, Big Girls Don't Cry, that was constantly playing in the car, right? Like, it's in our songs. We, we're uncomfortable with sadness. Uh, there's a reason why it's so relatable for sadness in the movie Inside Out to be the outcast, right? And we constantly, even in the church, can be tempted to look for silver linings rather than to allow ourselves to mourn. We don't want to mourn. Lament and grief is vulnerable. It can make us feel weak. And if we're honest with ourselves, control is often a more comforting thing for us, or at least the illusion of it. Uh, when I think of this, I think of uh, in The Office, Michael Scott, in the episode Grief Counseling, he says this. He says, there are five stages of grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And right now, out there, they are all denying the fact that they're sad, and that's hard and it's making them all angry. I think we, too, deny the fact that we're sad, and it even makes us angry. But he continues in a less wise way, and it is my job to get them all the way through to acceptance, and if not acceptance, then just depression. And if I can get them depressed, then I'll have done my job. Uh, Jesus is not trying to make us depressed, and neither am I today, but he does call us to mourn. And it seems paradoxical, but Jesus says that mourners will flourish. 
And we don't only struggle with this ourselves, but we don't want to mourn with others. We can avoid those who are experiencing challenges because we don't want their sadness to maybe rub off on us. We can give grieving people silver lining answers, not out of love, but because we are just uncomfortable with sitting in sadness. But Jesus is not just speaking to individuals here, but to the community of God, because he is calling the church to mourn with those who mourn. And so this is the big idea I want us to see today. The kingdom of God is full of mourners. Will you repeat that with me? The kingdom of God is full of mourners. But you might be asking the question, what does it mean to mourn? What does that mean? Well, those who mourn both grieve in their experience of tragedy, injustice, and death, and they reach out to others in grief and compassion when they experience injustice, sin, evil, tragedy, and death. In other words, they suffer and they love those who suffer. They suffer and they love those who suffer. But why is it that Jesus calls us to mourn? Like, why is lament so important to God? Well, if you're new to the Bible, we mourn because we believe that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's why we mourn. We mourn because we believe that things are not the way they're supposed to be. When I think of this, I think of this, uh, this novel created by this guy named Patrick Rothfuss. He writes fantasy things, and it's called The Slow Regard for Silent Things. And in this book, he has this character who's kind of this, this Shakespearean fool character, this character you look at and you think, oh, they don't know a lot, but they're actually the one with wisdom. And in this story, this short story, she lives in this sewer system, and basically the first 50 pages are nonsense. She's running around trying to make things fit in their place. Uh, it, it almost feels, um, uh, uh, I'm now forgetting the name, but that old classic novel. Anyway, she, um, she's trying to make sense of things, and he writes this profound statement. He says, she knew, she knew how quickly things could break. You did the things you could. You tended to the world for the world's sake. You hoped you would be safe, but still she knew it could come crashing down and there was nothing you could do. She, in this moment, acknowledged something that I think we all understand, that in our lives and experiences, things are often not the way they're supposed to be. Things feel out of whack. And if you were with us in our previous series in Genesis, before we moved in, we know uh, in that long series uh, that Genesis and the Bible doesn't start at Genesis 3, which is where sin enters the world. There's something before that. One of my professors in seminary used to constantly say, God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he has made. God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he has made. And one of the most important things to understanding why Christians mourn is that we mourn because there is something perfect and lovely. We mourn because Christians believe that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so it is actually natural to mourn because tragedy, injustice, sin, evil, and death are common in our experience, but they are unnatural. We don't mourn to throw a pity party. Jesus calls us to mourn because it is the most honest and brave response in the face of the unnatural. And when we mourn, we actually are living out God's created order, and we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Because Jesus, who was without sin, mourned. In John 11, Jesus 
went uh, in the, to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He knew that he was going to resurrect him. And yet, in the beginning of that passage, he looked at the tomb of his friend and he wept because death is unnatural. It's not the way things are supposed to be. In Luke 22, Jesus wept for the persecution he would face for obeying God's will. He so intensely felt this sadness that he wept tears of blood as he asked the Father that if it was his will, he would take this cup from him. In Jesus' kingdom, we mourn because we await the fullness of his kingdom that we were made for. See, I think that we, we know often that we experience gratitude for the things we lose, right? These are in our songs, they're in our life, that when something is taken away from us, it gives us perspective. But Jesus, too, is offering us a different perspective in his kingdom, that we were created for a world without sin and look forward to a world without sin. So we have something to mourn in our world with sin. I'll say that again. Jesus gives us a new perspective that we were created for a world without sin, and we look forward to a world without sin. So we have something to mourn in a world with sin. So this is, how, this is why we mourn, but how do we mourn? See, first what Jesus tells us is that the flourishing person grieves as an individual. And as I look at the Bible and take a look at kind of what this means, I think there's a few key things. First, it means that we're honest in our sadness. In Luke 22, Jesus is honest with the Father about how he is experiencing what is ahead of him at the cross, even though he intends to obey him. And we can honestly grieve even if we know that God is at work and that he's sovereignly working his will. In the Old Testament, men and women put on sackcloth sackcloth to mourn, and they cried loudly and fiercely. Followers of Yahweh were not afraid of grieving the wrong way, whatever that means for you in your cultural context. This brought, they brought their sadness out with God and amongst the community of God. And this might not be how we grieve honestly today, but it's worth asking the question, are we holding back our sadness of God from, from God because we are afraid to grieve? Are we afraid to grieve the, quote, wrong way, whatever that is, or because we believe that God might view our sadness and pain as somehow impious? But God invites his children to mourn and to come to him. David, who was called a man after God's own heart in the Old Testament, has some pretty honest words with God in the Psalms. In Psalm 6, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me. O Lord, for my bones are troubled, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long will this last? In Psalm 13, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So we mourn honestly. We also mourn with God in prayer and in his word. Paul in Romans 12 writes these words to a persecuted church. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And we often forget in our sadness that God has given us access to himself, that he invites us to speak with him in prayer, and he promises that he hears us. Praying is not a performance, but is God granting access, but is God granting access to his children? Jesus himself will say in Matthew 6 in this sermon that prayer is not about babbling. 
It's not about using big words. It's about access to the living God. And he has also given us his word to remind us who he is as we mourn. Because it's honestly easy to forget. And so his word is an incredible gift when we don't know what to pray. We also see in scripture that part of mourning is mourning with requests. That God invites us in our mourning to make requests to him. That Jesus himself prayed in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We also learn that mourning, we should mourn expectantly. That in John 11, Jesus knows the resurrection is coming. He knows that his friend Lazarus will be with him alive again. But he still weeps. That Martha, his friend, also wept at the tomb of her brother. And she expectantly gave a statement of faith in verse 24 that she believed there would be resurrection on the last day. Praying expectantly with hope does not mean that we minimize our grief, but it does mean that grief is not the end of the story. And so let me ask the question, where might God be inviting us to mourn? Is it for you the loss of a loved one? Is it your unhappiness or your loneliness? Is it the loss of a pastor in the church? Is it the transitory nature of Madison that friends move away? Is it the challenges in your workplace? Are you struggling in your marriage or your relationship with your kids? God tells us that when we mourn, we actually flourish. And he invites us, his children, to be sad with him. And he listens. So first we see that God invites us to mourn as individuals, but we also see that the flourishing person grieves with and for others. That there's a communal nature to mourning. And grieving with and for others requires compassion. We see in the Gospels that Jesus often mourns when he is moved with compassion. That someone who mourns is not only moved uh, themselves, but is moved by and for others. Jesus, to quote it again in John chapter 11, at the, uh, the story of him and Lazarus, he not only wept because his friend died, but he wept because in John eleven thirty three we see that he saw Lazarus' sister Mary weeping. And he was, quote, deeply moved with compassion. In Luke 15, Jesus tells this parable of the prodigal son. And in it, we see that the father in this story is a picture of God our father, who is moved with compassion for his son, who has gone away and lost everything. And so he does this. Jesus says, but while he was still long away, that is his son, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. In Luke 19, we see that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And he weeps because there are so many that have denied him in his entry. And he is distressed by their need for salvation. He's moved by his love for them. And so the question is, if the community of God is to flourish and to live into Jesus' kingdom, we have to learn how to have compassion for those who mourn. We also see that in order to do this, Jesus calls us to grieve with and for others in patience. In John 11, Jesus knows once again that Lazarus is going to be resurrected, but he still weeps with Mary. He doesn't quote a Bible verse at her. He doesn't tell her that everything's going to be okay, even though it will. He weeps with her. 
and sits with her and waits expectantly for what's to come. Remember that we need God's word to remember who God is in our grief. But Jesus does not model to us how to mourn with those who mourn by explaining to them what God is doing. Rather, he just mourns patiently near them, waiting expectantly. So what does this mean for us? We'll ask these questions for us to reflect on. Is Res Ples a a place where we mourn with those who mourn? How can we ask God to strengthen our compassion so that we can be a community that better sees each other's pain? How can we develop a patience presence with each other so that we can sit in grief expectantly for each other like Jesus does? So we see that we are called to mourn ourselves and as a community, but what is the result of this way of being? Remember, the key is in those two words, the way of being and the for, that is, the why. And what we see is that we can mourn because God comforts. We can mourn because God comforts. And so not only does Jesus provide a better way to mourn, but he gives us a better reason to mourn. See, there are good reasons out there to mourn. Psychologists and therapists will tell you that attending to our sadness and actually mourning produces health benefits. Sociologists have observed that bosses or supervisors with greater empathy tend to lead more productive teams. These are good reasons to mourn and to mourn with those who mourn. But Jesus gives us a better reason. He is a better comfort than health benefits or better social reactions. Because in him and his kingdom, we find what we truly long for. And so what we see first is that God's presence is a better comfort. You'll see in your bulletin, I couldn't resist quoting uh, St. Ted Lasso, and he says this in one of his episodes. He says to his team who's just lost an important game, I want you to be grateful that you're going through this sad moment with all these other folks, because I promise you there's something worse out there than being sad, and that is being alone and being sad, and nobody in this room alone. You Christians are never alone in your grief. Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend, and he wept, and he weeps with his people as we await his return. We see in Isaiah that Jesus is a God who does not break a bruised reed. He is gentle with us. In Hebrews chapter 7, we learn that Jesus, our great high priest, constantly intercedes for his people in heaven. He speaks up for you. In Genesis 16, there's a story that many of you might have heard before. We didn't go through in our Genesis series about this woman named Hagar who uh, gets pregnant with Abraham. And uh, at the end of this story, she is experiencing all sorts of troubles. She's being abused. She is grieving her condition. But she in faith cries out to God, and she says this, You are a God of seeing. See me. And God blesses her son Ishmael, which means... God has seen your affliction. There is a uh, famous counselor named Gottman who defines love and marriage as this. When you are in pain, the world stops and I listen. 
defines love in a covenantal relationship as this. When you are in pain, the world stops and I listen. Friends, when you are mourning for our covenant loving God, the world stops and he listens. So God's presence is a better comfort. But we also see that Jesus' work is a better comfort. See, our hope in Jesus is in the already and the not yet. You might have heard that phrase before, the already and the not yet. See, there's the already aspect, that in the Bible we see that Jesus' work is finished. His victory is final, and there's no ambiguity about his reign. His kingdom has already come. And this means some things. This means that we should mourn sin, and we can sing, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It means that we should mourn injustice, and we have hope that Jesus, the great judge, will return to bring justice. It means that we should mourn death, and Jesus has defeated death. We serve a God who brings dead things to life, who Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, will fulfill Hosea 13, which says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So Jesus' work is a better comfort. We see that heaven, finally, is a better comfort. You may be familiar with that old story, The Wizard of Oz, whether you've seen it in movie form or in written form. Uh, The monkeys always freaked me out, uh, so I have a less than fond relationship of that movie. Uh, But here's the song that's sung by Dorothy. She sings, Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue, And the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why then, oh, why can't I? If happy little bluebirds fly over the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? The Wizard of Oz is a story about Dorothy longing for home. And I think we also long for a place like this. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy found out that there was nothing better over the rainbow. There was no place better than home in Kansas. But Jesus teaches that there is, in fact, a better place. And unlike the wizard, God can deliver, and he has delivered in Jesus. See, we don't mourn in vain. We mourn in hope. Here's the words of Jesus' kingdom fully arrived in Revelation 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Heaven is a better comfort. God is a better comfort and presence. Let's pray that God would help us as we seek to become mourners.
Jesus, we pray that you would help us today to become mourners so that we, your people, might flourish in your embrace and with your comfort. God, would you, by your spirit, help us to bring our sadness and our longing for you to you and help us to sit with others patiently and compassionately in their grief. God, in all these things, we pray that you would draw near to us with your comfort. Jesus, we thank you that your work is finished. And we also pray, as you taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.